This morning, as we are back in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, we are going to encounter a question that is asked. The question is uh, probably one of the most important questions that anyone can ask. In fact, it's a question that all of us should ask, whether you would call yourself a follower of, uh, of Jesus or not. Uh, every human must consider this question and know the answer. That question is, who can stand before the presence of the holy covenant God of the Bible? How you answer that question, how you respond to the answer, has eternal consequences. Uh, we want to look at that question and the answer this morning. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6 this morning. Uh, if you want to follow along in one of the Bibles there in your seats, it's on page 228. Remember the book of 1 Samuel has been written to, uh, to prepare and tell us about the preparation of the coming king of God. And as God's people, we too, uh, in fact, everybody who hears this needs to be prepared for the coming of the king. That king is Jesus. And this question that is asked in this chapter this morning is a necessary part of that preparation. So if you would, please follow along with me. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 5, and we're going to go all the way to uh, verse 1 of chapter 7 uh, as it continues this whole uh, narrative account here. So if you would, please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of Yahweh was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of Yahweh was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. 
But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it might not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of Yahweh was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? Tell us what we shall send, uh, tell us with what shall we send it to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of, God, of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the, to the, cows, uh, yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of Yahweh and pl- place it on the cart and put it in a box and it's, uh, at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go on its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of uh, Yahweh on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh burnt, uh, offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to Yahweh. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to Yahweh. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of Yahweh is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 men of them 
And the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of Yahweh. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of Yahweh and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word, for your special revelation to us, your people. We thank you that, uh, Holy Spirit, you actively use your word still uh, in this world and in the lives of those who hear it. Uh, We pray this morning, uh, please uh, accomplish your purposes. Uh, Point us, draw us to, to cling to, hope in, worship and rightly honor you and Jesus, our Savior and King. In his name we pray. Amen. Who is able to stand before this holy God? That's the question we want to ask and approach and see uh, what answers come to us from this passage. Uh, We're going to look at at, at three different Things or groups of people that this question would be addressed to in this passage. First, what about other gods? Are other gods able to stand in the presence of the holy God of the Bible? Look at verses 1 through 5. Do you remember what happened when they brought the ark of God into the house of Dagon? One of the things first, just, just to notice as we're, we're reading, looking back through these first five verses, is notice that the, the Ark of Yahweh, the Ark of God, is called just that, the Ark of God. But when they talk about the statue of Dagon, the statue is Dagon. The Ark is a, a, a sign and a symbol of God's special presence, but this, this statue is the God. And notice what happens when Dagon, the God, finds himself in the presence of the holy God of the Bible. First, you see what happened the first day? They, they brought him in, and when they came in the next morning in verse 3, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of Yahweh. What does that posture communicate? Worship honor, recognizing who is the powerful, sovereign God. It's not Dagon. Notice what happens the next morning. Well, first, notice notice this. How does Dagon get back in his place? Is he able to do it himself? No. You, You see this? This God isn't even able to stand himself back up. This passage, the way that the author has written it, is full of mockery. They're wanting to mock and ridicule this false God who can't even stand up on his own. But what does the God of the Bible do? 
he moves throughout the entire territory of the Philistines, hitting up every single one of their major cities and decimating them. An impotent, powerless, non-God in the presence of the sovereign creator and maker of all things. And notice what happens ultimately to all gods who enter in to the presence and stand before the one living and true God of the Bible. Dagon, in verse 4, when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of Yahweh and the head of Dagon, and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. He's been slaughtered. This was common practice of the military armies of that time, of how they would show their defeat and their conquering of other nations by taking the leader and cutting off their head and their hands. What do we see here? Dagon stands no chance, no chance before the God of the Bible. When he comes into his presence, he loses. In fact, the Philistines recognize this as they continue on. Do you notice how they describe what God was doing? Uh, look in, in verse 7. Uh, they talk about the men of Ashdod, uh, and they're recognizing what is going on. And they say that the ark of God must not remain uh, with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. They recognize that what God is doing is demonstrating his power and his might against their God. And again, in verse 5, when the priests talk, they say, Perhaps this God will lighten his hand from off you and your gods. They stand no chance. He is the powerful one. When Beckett was little, uh, we used to like to play superheroes. And so he came up to me one time. I think I've told this story way back when we were in the storefront. He said, Daddy, let's play superheroes. I'm like, all right. I know who I'm going to be. Wolverine. No question. I'm going to be Wolverine. Beckett goes, I'm going to be everything, man. I'm like, everything, man. I'm like, well, I'm Wolverine. I can heal. I got these strong uh, claws. I'm going to tear you up. He's like, no, because I'm everything, man. I can resist all of your stuff, break off your claws, and kill you. You're dead. I win. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, then I'm going to be Superman. I'm strong. I'm fast. I can fly. I can shoot laser beams out of my eyes. I'm going to take you out. No, uh I'm everything, man. I can block all your laser beams and then kill you. I'm starting to get frustrated at this point, trying to think, all right, I'll be the Hulk. I'm going to Hulk smash you, everything, man. No, you're not. I can resist all of your Hulk smash, and I'll everything man smash you, and I'll win. You're dead. You lose. I'm getting really frustrated at this point, and I'm like, all right, well, now I'm going to be everything man. No, you're not. I'm already everything man. There's only one. You lose. <laughs> at that point, I'm so mad, I quit the game, and I'm like, this isn't fair. I'm not playing again. You see? That is what we're seeing here. It's not fair. You might as well quit. 
There is only one everything man. There is only one everything God. He's the God of the Bible. No God will stand up to him. All will be shown and proven to be false, to be weak, to have no sufficiency to save and stand before him in his might and his power and his glory. And we have seen as the scriptures unfold the power and the might of this God who takes on flesh to redeem and save and deliver his people in such a way that they will never be taken from his hand. No God can take you from his hand. No person, no military, no might, not even death. This is the God of the Bible. If this is true, if no God can stand before him, then why? Why pursue and go after any other God? That means there is no God that can resist him, that will deliver or save you. Not the gods of the Hindus. They will be crushed. Not the God of Islam. Decimated. Not your money and your stuff that you're hoping in. Not your aspirations for of uh, status as you seek to, to, be, uh, to have power or promotion or influence in your job or in your school or on your team. Everything that you're hoping for to deliver you, to save you, to provide for you, in the end, before this sovereign and powerful God of the scriptures, they will prove to be nothing. Heads gone, arms gone, defeated, decimated, destroyed. There is no God, no deliverer, no savior that you can hope in that will be sufficient. There is only one. If that is the case, then we must turn from all other gods. Notice, there's another group of individuals, people in here. If, if no gods can stand in the presence of the holy God of the scriptures, what, what about un unbelievers? Those who did not believe and are not trusting in the God of the Bible or in Jesus, the Savior that he has sent. Look at the result. In verse, verses 6 and following in chapter 5. The hand of Yahweh was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And it continued to go, to go on. They, they said the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us because his hand is hard against us. So they decide to, to, to send, it, send it on. They send it, they're like, well, let's give Gath our problem. What happens when they get to Gath? Just after they had brought it around, the hand of Yahweh was against that city, causing a very great panic, it tells us in verse 9. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Youth, wisdom, innocence, it doesn't matter. They were afflicted. 
the hard hand of God was against them. So they sent him on to Ekron. But as soon as the ark came to Ekron, the people were like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Don't you bring that ark around here that's going to kill us and our people, they say in verse 10. And therefore they said they, they sent him away that he would not kill us. But notice what ends up happening anyway in verse 11. There was deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Here, God is demonstrating and showing that when his presence, remember, that's what we we learned and saw last week, that the ark is a, a, a symbol, a sign of the very special and holy presence of God among his people. And when it moves into and around those who are not honoring him as their king, who are not glorifying him as the holy and righteous God that he is, who are not submitting to and trusting and relying on him, his presence is not a place of blessing. His presence is one of destruction, of affliction. Here, what we're seeing is an early breaking in of the end-time judgment that will occur for all who enter into the presence of the holy, perfect, and righteous God and what the result will be if we are not glorifying and honoring Him. Notice that's the the, the response that the priests give. What is it that they need to do? Look down on in verse 5. You must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. The issue is glory. The issue is honor. Rightly responding to God for who he is. Faith, trust, repentance. Acknowledging you are God, you are king, I am not. Notice that they have learned from God's revelation in the past. You see how these priests, the priests even of the Philistines, are warning their people don't be like the Egyptians. Don't you remember what happened then when the presence of God came among that people? who were rebelling against him, who were harming and hurting his people, and how God sent the judgment upon them, and they hardened their hearts, and it got worse and worse and worse. In fact, the way we look at those plagues is not just judgment on Egypt, but an indictment and a destruction of their gods. Here we see demonstration and showing what it is that awaits. What is the, the, the only just penalty for those who come into the presence of God standing on their own merit, not recognizing our guilt and looking and trusting in His provision. In fact, that's what the, all the Old Testament reveals and points to. Your only hope is in the mercy and the grace of God. Here, they don't understand it clearly, but they do recognize 
we must depend and look, and maybe he will be gracious to us. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you. Uh, those, the offering that they sent in verse 3, they describe it as a guilt offering. They recognize their guilt before God. But notice, does gold assuage the wrath of our God? Does gold take away our guilt? No. Without the shedding of blood, there is no deliverance from our sin. In fact, we see ultimately where the hearts of the people of, of the Philistines are. They just want to get away from the wrath. They don't want to know this God. They want him out of their country. And when they see and they follow these cows along the way and see that God's ark has gone back to Israel, what does it tell them they do in verse 16? They turn around and they go back. Uh, you see, this is, it, it's clear. They even want to find out, is this God active in doing? So they go about this scientific experiment with the cows and the, uh, the, the calves and the ark and the, the box of, of gold, and it goes straight to Beth Shemesh, straight to and designating and showing that what is happening here is that it is God. He is the one who is bringing judgment on the people of the Philistines, those who do not believe, who do not hope, in him. It is not a coincidence. Same is true. This isn't just something that is true of the character of the God of the Old Testament. We've seen this has been clear throughout the scriptures of both the new and the old, that we serve a righteous and a holy God, and that those who are not submitting and hoping and trusting in him, relying on his gracious provision to deal with our sin. Not our own acts, not our own works, not works of religion or righteousness or goodness, but on the blood that God provides. Jesus communicates and says the same things. Those who are not coping in him will suffer eternally away from his good and gracious presence. Who can stand before this holy God. If you are not responding to him as he has revealed himself for who he truly is and giving glory and honor, turning from yourself being the king and submitting to and trusting in what this holy and righteous God has done and provided for sinners, then you will not be able to stand in the presence of this holy God. We've seen that no God can stand before the presence of our holy God. No unbeliever will be able to stand before the presence of a holy God. What, if, what about those who profess to be believers of the God of the Bible? Notice, notice what happens in verse 13. When the ark comes back. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping uh, their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. 
They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows of the burnt offering to Yahweh. The Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the box that was beside it with, with the golden figures and set them up on a great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to Yahweh. At first, when Yahweh's presence comes back among the people, they rejoice. They're grateful. In fact, they begin to respond appropriately for what, how those who are professing faith in this one God would do. They rejoice and celebrate that his presence is back among them. They take the, the, these cows that have brought the cart, they kill them, bust up the cart, and offer up whole burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. The Levites, the only ones who should be moving the ark, are the ones that they bring out to lift it off of the cart appropriately. They're beginning to respond and honor and respect God as the Holy One that He is. Kind of. You notice what happens in verse 19? And He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away from us? Here, the presence of this holy God among those who profess faith in him, realize they've not appropriately recognized his holiness, his glory, his righteousness, have not treated and responded to him the way that he deserves to be treated, the way that is appropriate for creatures, for servants to respond to the creator and maker and redeemer of them. It, it tells us that they looked upon the ark. You might go, what's the big deal? God's ark is too holy for his people to look upon it in that way. It was supposed to be covered. They weren't supposed to be uh, presume upon their worthiness to look and gaze upon it. In fact, the, the language that's there uh, hints that, that it, was, uh, it was not a, a look and a desire of, of glory and awe, but one that was demeaning and dishonoring to God. You see, even as God's people, we must recognize and realize the holiness of our God. Think about a little boy who has gotten a knife. First knife he's ever received. It's one that he's proud of. One that he knows back and forward. He's playing with it all the time. He's very familiar with it. Knows the curves. Knows uh, how to flip it up and flip it down. Uh, can sometimes maybe even toss it up and catch it again because he knows the weight of it and how it spins and how the handle's going to come around just the right way. But guess what? It doesn't matter how familiar you are with this knife. How well you know it. 
can still cut you when you are careless. When you don't show the knife the respect that it deserves as something that can harm you when treated and dealt with inappropriately. And we as God's people need to recognize and understand this. Now we may say, whoa, whoa, whoa. This may have been the case of the God of the Old Testament. He was a God like that. But now we're in the New Testament. We're in Jesus. God would never deal with his people in that way. Would he? Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Church in Corinth was celebrating the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, or so they thought. Paul actually tells them in this passage, because of the way that they're celebrating it, it's not actually the Lord's Supper that they're celebrating at all. Because of how they've made a mockery of God, who he is, what he's done in his great redemption. Think again, is this not a sign of God's gracious presence among us, his people? And are we too approach him and understand our place before him, the great grace and mercy that has been extended to all of us. But the church in Corinth was mistreating some, setting them off because of their status in another room. Some got great large portions, big cups of wine, all the bread. They were getting drunk. Everybody else was hungering. And Paul says, this is a mockery of God. And notice what he says. In verse 27 of chapter 11, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of God, a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine him then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Judge yourself rightly. How do you judge yourself rightly? By recognizing who God is and who we are. If we fail to respond to him appropriately, God will in this time, punishes people. Notice it's in grace and discipline. Why? So that ultimately you will not be judged. God is saying there's sometimes when my people will respond so uh, ignorant to my holiness and my worth and my perfections that I will take you out now to guard my honor and to save you. It is better for that to happen to you now than to you get to the end of the, of the day of judgment and to stand before the holy God and experience the full wrath that we deserve. Here, God is telling us of his grace and his mercy, showing us 
what we're seeing among the people of Israel during, in the book of 1 Samuel, what we're seeing in the church in Corinth. God is warning us. Respond appropriately to your sin. Turn from it. Do not be one who does not rightly honor and respect the glory of God. To look to him in faith and trust and to deal rightly with your sin. James says a similar thing. Look the book of James. Chapter 5. James is talking to those who find themselves sick in the congregation he is uh, talking to. Calls upon them in uh, verses 13 and following to call the elders of the church to come and pray for them, to anoint them with oil. And notice what he says, the last half of verse 15. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James is saying, Paul is saying, not every time you're sick. Not every time you experience hardship is it directly related to your sin. The scriptures are clear about that. Read the book of Job and see there's lots of other things that could be going on. Listen to what Jesus says with about the man born blind. Was it this guy who sinned or his parents that he's suffering this? Jesus says neither, but that God's glory might be revealed. But do not let that lull you into carelessness before the presence of God and not realize that it is possible that as God's people, that he will bring punishment upon us in the, uh, in the way of physical sickness and suffering to bring our attention to who he is. And it is appropriate when we're sick just to make sure, God, I, I want to know. If this is you trying to get my attention, because I know I, I could have missed something, please forgive me for dishonoring you. Show me if that's what's going on. Repent. Confess. It might not be it, but you've taken care of and appropriately responded to the God who has redeemed and saved you and who has called you to himself and provided his son to deal with and care for you and your sin. What about us as God's people now? How are we ignorant to his glory, careless, overly familiar, and reckless with the way that we live our lives? The way that we demonstrate his fame and his name in the world. We're his family. You've been adopted. You bear his name. When you go out into the world, guess who you're representing? Let's not dishonor this gracious and merciful one who has provided the way for our salvation through Jesus. Why do you think it took the death of the creator of the world for you and me to be saved? Because he's that holy. He's that perfect. He's that righteous. And that is who our sin has offended. The offer of grace is there for us. 
this summer we watched a, kind of a drama documentary about the uh, disaster at the nuclear plant in Chernobyl. And uh, uh, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but Vasali and Ludmila uh, Ignatenko. He was a fireman, and he was one of the first ones to go out to deal with the blaze that was going on. And he, I mean, he had no radiation protection on. He just had his fireman stuff on. He goes out there, and they're fighting the the fires and the the core that had melted down and all of this stuff. And he comes back with extreme radiation poisoning. I mean, this guy's dying. His wife goes in to see him. She doesn't tell him that she's pregnant. She goes in to see her husband. She hugs him. She is poisoned as well. She survives, but her baby doesn't. Her husband ends up dying. When this story came out, a lot of people started accusing her of killing her baby. She's like, I didn't know. I had no clue. I thought I would protect it. That the baby being in my body would be enough shield and provision to keep it from being affected. Really what she was saying is, if I would have known, I wouldn't have acted that way. I didn't realize the danger. Do you see what our gracious and merciful God is doing this morning? He's making sure that everyone here hears and knows you don't want to come to the end and say if I'd only known the scriptures say no one can stand in the presence of a holy God apart from the forgiveness and grace and trust of Jesus if that is you today Call out to him. Flee to him. If you are already trusting in Jesus, give him glory and honor by resting, fleeing, and always clinging and trusting in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us, your people. We thank you that you give us these warnings. You help us to see and know who you are as you've revealed yourself in the scriptures. We pray and ask that that we would respond appropriately, humbling ourselves before you, our righteous, our sovereign, our holy, our perfect, but also our merciful and our gracious God. In your name we pray. Amen.